we're at the end of Awaken, our month of prayer and fasting. So to those facing resistance, I'd ponder, oddly enough, in a season of devoted, elevated devotion to the Lord, you're facing some hardship maybe you didn't expect. What are the odds? My only word to conclude Awaken is juxtaposing a diet from a lifestyle. Diet is kind of a dumb word because diet implies, hey, stop being unhealthy for a little bit. And then you're good. It's kind of goofy, right, when you think about it. It should be like the other way around. A diet should be, why don't you be unhealthy for a month and then go back to 11 months of health? But instead, we've done it the other way. <laughs> okay, never mind. I really thought that would register and uh, resonate. I thought you'd be like, wow, good point, Josh. Um, <laughs> but a diet is be really healthy for a short window. And my invitation is wherever you discovered health in this season, wherever you've experienced fruits with the Lord in your inner closet or your understanding of scripture, whatever habits that you formed in this season, even if they were the teeny tiny thing, like just no phone at bed, that's amazing. Whatever habit that has been blessing your life, consider not letting it stop at the end of February, but instead going, God, more than a diet, this is gonna be a lifestyle overhaul. I actually wanna take this good habit, this good rhythm, and I wanna do it until I see you face to face. That's the new deal. This is the new me, right? And so that's my only encouragement is, man, if God blessed you in any particular way in this season of devoted prayer and fasting, don't leave it behind. Take it with you. Let it continue to bless your life and form you. This will impact you, but it will also impact your communities, your families, all of that. So congratulations, love you. Any step you took was a good one, way to go. We're in James chapter four. The series we're in is called Draw Near. It hinges on this promise in James 4, 8, draw near to God, he'll draw near to you. The best verse ever, just like draw near to God, he'll draw near. Bingo bongo, that easy. But we're exploring the verses before and right after that help us understand what it looks like for James 4, 8 to come to fruition in our life. There's actually some prerequisites, namely purify your hearts, get right, lay down any idols, lay down any sin, lay down anything in the way that would actually prevent you from being able to even try James 4, 8, which would be too drawn near. There are things in your heart and in your life that are actually what Jesus would call stumbling blocks on your way to drawing near. And if you can't draw near, then you can't live into James 4, 8. It's this wonderful, James 4, 1 through 10 is blowing my mind. I'm seeing the fruits in our church, this call to like this deep humility so that we can, main, that we can grow in deep intimacy with God. And I'm gonna read James chapter 4, 1 through 6. If you've got a Bible, read with me. If you don't, look on the screen, the whole thing's there. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and don't have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he's made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Have you ever heard of a, of a parent saying, this is going to hurt me more than it hurts you? That was never said to me. 
But traditionally, I believe the picture is said like before a spanking, you know? Now listen, before I do this, this is gonna hurt me more than it hurts you. Ever drawn your skepticism before? You're like, now explain that to me. How this is gonna hurt you more than it's gonna hurt me. Sure, makes me feel better. Bring the pain, you know? Like, I guess it's like, I think anytime like a parent punishes a kid, that's where that phrase comes from. This parent suggesting that somehow the punishment they're delivering is gonna hurt them more than the recipient of the punishment. Now that I'm a parent, I'm starting, I mean, we're nine months in, but I'm starting to understand that is a thousand percent true. If you're a healthy parent, it's a thousand percent true. It hurts you more than your kids. And I'm gonna tell a story that helps us understand how true this is. And listen, half of this teaching is a story that I'm gonna expound on, and then half of it is looking at James 4, 6. So don't be eager to like hear this story conclude. We're gonna be here. This is my shortest teaching of the year, I think, but honestly, now that I've said that, probably gonna be my longest. Here we go. <laughs> Several months ago, a few of our, and I'm also gonna be locked into my notes too, man. Um, several months ago, a few of our staff members were meeting with our elders. It was morning and we had gathered and we were gonna eat breakfast before getting into like six to eight hours of just straight meeting. Everyone there was a dad except for me. My friend Will showed up late and he sits down. He says, sorry guys, I had to get on to my son before I left and it did not go well. And all of a sudden, every dad at the table let out this, just this groan. It was so interesting. And this was back when Leah was pregnant, so I'm not a dad yet. And my parent ears are turned up. I'm like trying to pay attention, like it's coming, right? Like I got a baby coming, so I'm like just watching. And that groan really caught my attention, like, because conceptually in my mind, you know, you discipline a child when they misbehave. That's just kind of how it is. You got to do that. Sort of matter of fact. But when I heard that groan, collectively, all of them at the same time, it caught me. I had to contemplate and like sponge up what came next. And for the next 30 minutes, I kid you not, for the next 30 minutes, the dads went around exchanging stories about how terrible it is to punish your children. And I could have understood conceptually, it's not fun to get onto your kids. But in this moment, I was experiencing it. There was no audience, no sermon, no podcast. It was just a bunch of dads eating eggs and commiserating and feeling terrible. And so I actually met with Will last week because this is a story that came to my mind when I read this verse. And I was actually like, I'm gonna deep dive this a little bit because he's got two daughters and a son. And I want to know more about his journey learning how to discipline his children. And it's an important conversation for us here, and I think eventually it's going to start making sense, but a phrase that I've been praying and thinking about, really thinking about more than actually praying this phrase, but this idea that God would help us grow from adolescence to adults in the faith, in a culture that keeps us adolescent-minded, that God would raise up adults in this church who are mature and wise. And I think today's conversation is going to help. So I asked Will, why is disciplining your kids so hard? The rest of what I'm gonna say in this story is a combination of my thoughts and his thoughts and you'll have to figure out who was saying what. I kind of forget now anyway. 
Why is it hard to punish them? Simple answer, pain. Pain is why it's hard. I know what pain feels like, physically, emotionally, mentally. And parenting is one of the few places of premeditated pain for the good of somebody else. Like your fitness instructor will lead you to pain for your good, but that's different. You get a six pack at the end of that, you know? (laughs) Doing this with your child is like the NBA of premeditated pain. There's levels to this, it's hard. We know that shame and guilt and being rebuked, it hurts. I know that feeling and I do not want my child to feel that. I almost cried just now thinking about it. And when you're punishing your children, you're the source of the pain. Like my wife, she's not my blood. I love my wife so much, but on some level, there is a condition to that love. That's what vows are. We're gonna hold up our end of the deal here. And if you start breaking those vows, I might still love you all the way, but we're gonna have to talk, right? But when it's your kid, Now that's agape love, that's in your blood. That's unconditional love before they've even done anything. They're just existing and you're like, I will never not love you. Do anything, I will not, I will always love you. There's a deeper sense of empathy. And when that child wells up with tears, when that child, those lips start to quiver as you're getting on to them, you're just gonna feel it. I hate that you're hurting right now. I do not enjoy this. And as Will would put it, unless I'm a psychopath. (laughs) He was like, if I was a psychopath, maybe I'd like that you're hurting, but I'm not one. I hate that you're hurting. It's hard to bring pain to someone you love. And when I heard Will talking through this, I heard a dad that was more eager to enjoy his kids than oppose his kids. So this led to an important question. Then why do it? Why hurt them? It hurts them, it hurts you, why do it? Why punish them? Why discipline them? Why oppose them? Here's why. Because parenting is about vision. As a parent, it's your responsibility not just to enjoy your child as they are, but to equip them for who they're going to become. And there's a difference between parenting out of vision versus parenting out of reaction. Reaction would be this spur of the moment, impulsive, relatively thoughtless way of parenting. It's responding to misbehavior out of fear or fatigue or laziness or neglect or trauma or pure selfishness. And when you respond this way, you tend to overdo it or underdo it for a variety of reasons. I don't wanna hurt him right now. I don't want this inconvenience. I don't feel like investing the time. I don't really have the energy to think critically. I'd rather just keep doing what I was already wanting to do. And so maybe you'll underdo your response. Here's some ice cream or a sugary snack, that always works. Here's an iPad, watch this. Or just no response at all, thus communicating this misbehavior is permissible in this household because I don't got the energy to deal with it. Or maybe you'll overdo it. You'll yell when it wasn't needed. You'll spew harmful words. You'll give a punishment that doesn't fit the crime. You'll speak from a place of hurry and angst. In the worst of circumstances, maybe you'll even abuse your child. That's reaction, driven by impulse. The best parenting, in my opinion, is vision. It's not responding with impulse. It's going, there's something I want you to become. And every word following is to get you where I want you going. 
This idea isn't gleaned from my own parenting. I'm nine months in. I'm, I'm not, I, it's nothing. It's gleaned from people I've watched, my own parents, but also several mentors, families that I'm seeing so much good fruit in. And what I've learned from them is they parent out of vision. In every situation, how do I respond to my child's misbehavior in a way that grows their health, their maturity, their sense of love? I want their future to be as healthy and as whole as humanly possible. How do I help my child be identity rich in the biblical sense? How do I help my child understand our relationship as parent, child? How am I helping my child grow spiritually, mentally, emotionally, physically? How am I helping my child become the best friend, coworker, servant, witness, light that they can possibly be? The best spouse, the best parent, the best grandparent. And stopping literally everything else to help ensure that you invest and respond to their misbehavior with vision. Nothing is more important than your child. Not dinner, not TV, not free time. Talk about easier said than done. Good parents rebuke and oppose their children out of a vision for a whole and healthy life. And children, left to their own devices, will not make decisions that lead to a primarily whole and healthy life. To put it simply, children make messes. They are selfish. They lie. They manipulate. They hide. They feel shame. They feel guilt. Guilt. They get hurt. They hurt others, and they struggle to sort through it. And we live in a time where we need parents that understand this. It's tempting to treat your kids as you want to be treated instead of treating them in a way that will guide them, heal them, and build them. There's a hidden selfishness in some of the ways parent, parent, parents parent nowadays. They project their own feelings and their own desires onto their children. It's more tempting than you think. Lee and I have already struggled with this with a nine-month-old. And you have to learn how to parent with vision in a way that's appropriate for their age obviously. So in those moments of wrongdoing, of sin, of rebellion, of pride, throwing things, talking back, bullying, hitting others, not sharing, saying mean things, interrupting, the parent has to respond out of vision for who they're becoming, even though it hurts to oppose the child. To be a parent is to be so eager to lavish love, but to carry the daunting responsibility of opposing wrongful behavior. And parents have to have vision to handle the tears of their children. They have to have vision to handle hurting their kids temporarily, but equipping them with sound wisdom for the long term. It's what helps this child become a giver and not a taker, a mature, wise, and kind adult instead of an impulsive, selfish, and thoughtless adolescent in their 20s. It's what helps their child lean on Jesus and not themselves. Now the best part, when the child shows remorse, guess what the parent gets to do? What they've been wanting to do this whole time. Oh, baby, I love you. It's, it's okay. I knew you'd make, I'm getting emotional thinking about my girl being old enough to have these conversations, but like, it's all good. I'm not even mad. I just knew we had to talk this thing out because you can't do this. 
You cannot treat your mama that way. You cannot treat your friends that way. You cannot, te- you cannot treat your teacher that way. You cannot treat humans that way. You cannot be selfish. You have to be thoughtful. That's just how it's gonna have to be. And now that you're sorry and your sweet little heart and those tears in your eyes and you've learned your lesson, let me say this and make, make it very clear. I love you the same right now as I did three hours ago and as I will tomorrow. You cannot do anything to get out of my love. I'm so proud of you, baby. I'm so proud you're able to learn a lesson right now. Way to go. You could have been stubborn and mean to me this whole time, but look at you, soft-hearted, learning a lesson, feeling sorry. I'm so proud, baby. I love you. I was just, I was just showing you my poker face when I was acting mad. Really, I was terrified because I don't like getting on to you. That's parenting. Any parents in here can say amen? Amen. That wasn't loud enough. I see some of (laughs) y'all. I'm making eye contact when I'm saying it. After that moment of remorse, it's like, oh, baby, it's all good. Let's go eat something. Let's go to the yard and play. Let's play a board game. What do you want to do? Let's laugh. That's all I've been wanting anyway. I've been eager to give grace, but I had to oppose your pride. James 4, 6, but he gives more grace. Therefore it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Point number one, he gives more grace. First off, did you even see that part of the verse coming? For all of us that are aware of the story of the Bible, sure, you understood eventually God was gonna give grace at some point here. But if you turn that part of your brain off and just follow the trail, it was not leading us here. The quarrels, the fighting, the coveting, the passions at war, the adulterers, the jealous God. And then what comes next? Oh, of course, he gives more grace. It's that Exodus 20 passage I mentioned two weeks ago. I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. His love outlives and outlasts his judgment. But this feels puzzling trying to wrap our mind around a jealous God and us being adulterers and being friends with the world puts us at enmity with God. Understanding how does that God give more grace? Even in the verse we're looking for today, he opposes the proud, but he gives grace to who? The humble. That is who God's grace is for. So we're learning about God. He's the parent, eager to lavish love, eager to give more grace and more grace and more grace. But we're also learning that our pride is a very important variable because our hard hearts can prove impenetrable. Which leads us to number two, God opposes the proud. Admittedly, I've always thought of pride as me opposing God which certainly is true. But the past couple of weeks, this has hit me differently. I realize it's a two-way street. My pride opposes God, but make no mistake, God opposes my pride. He is actively set against it. He's a God of vision. His kingdom come, his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And this will only come to pass through the humble. To those eager and willing to listen, to those, as Jesus would say, have ears to hear. A God of kingdom of heaven vision 
requires people that long to always know how that kingdom unfolds. Otherwise, we will build our own kingdoms of destruction. God's kingdom is one of flourishing. All of his instructions have vision for his glory and the good of the world. When we're left to our own pride, our decisions tend to lead us down a lesser path, to put it lightly. It's why the scriptures will strongly rebuke sexual immorality and strongly command sexual intimacy only within the context of covenant. This is not to hinder you, to hurt you, to restrict your freedom. It's there to help you, to be a gift to you. The scriptures strongly oppose a pattern that says yes to your every fleeting sexual desire because saying yes to every sexual desire before marriage will not stop after marriage. And the pattern of saying yes to every fleeting desire will hurt your marriage and it might destroy your marriage. And a destroyed marriage leads to destroyed relationships with your kids and your grandkids. And when you're 80, you'll be far more thankful that you preserved your marriage and your kids and your grandkids than you will be if you fulfilled every sexual craving however you wanted it, whenever you wanted it. So God opposes porn and fulfilling every sexual desire outside of covenant because he's a God of vision and he wants your health and your wholeness and your flourishing. This is true of any sin listed in the Bible. He opposes it because he opposes a sick or dying soul. He opposes, he opposes any disease that brings sickness and death to you and to the world around you. And this is most certainly true of pride the root of most sins. Pride, to put it simply, is I know best. I'm the teacher, not the student in this situation. I see the problem. I am not the problem. What's the future of someone who has no idea how to be humble? Even some of you right now are going, I know how to be humble. Are you, are you listening to what I'm saying? Never assume. Luke 5 says something that sounds mostly nice, but there's more to it. Jesus says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Jesus says something nice. He came to heal the sick. You're like, That's great. Good for you. What's he really saying? I came to heal and to bring life to those that know they need it. But if someone does not know there's something to be learned, what will they learn? If someone does not know they are sick, how will they ever seek healing? If someone does not know they are hungry, how will they know to ask for food? For Jesus, there are those that are hungry and there are those that are full. And those that are full are just as hungry. They're just full of themselves. God is not in the business of teaching those who are not listening, maturing those who think of themselves completed, feeding, feeding knowledge and wisdom to those that think of themselves abundantly wise and knowledgeable. In fact, God opposes that spirit. But... Number three, 
he gives grace to the humble. Just like a child who's been humbled by discipline, who's open-hearted, eager to listen, open to their parents' words. It's here where the child learns life lessons that help them grow into an adult of maturity, of confidence, of inner peace, of mental stability and clarity. That's the gift. That's the gift that only comes after humility. The humble get the gift of grace. The hungry are fed, the thirsty are quenched, the sick are healed. It's Peter on the beach, brokenhearted, but open-hearted. After he told Jesus, he'd die for him. And Jesus said, you're gonna deny that you even know me very soon. And after Peter did just that, with his broken heart, tail tucked, he finds the resurrected Jesus on the beach. And Jesus asked him three times, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Giving Peter the chance to make amends for every single denial. And from that moment, Peter never again denies Jesus. He gives his life up for the glory of God, all because why? He was humbled. His heart was broken. If you don't write anything else down, write this phrase down. A broken heart is an open heart. When we are humbled, or better yet, when we choose for ourselves to be humble, we now have a broken heart open to the gift of grace, open to the lessons of God, the formation of God, that formation that will never cease until we see him face to face always something to be learned. A spiritual mentor of mine told me a red flag is when you are not learning something from God because he is always trying to teach you something new at all times. When we're open to God forming in us who he created us to become, we must be this spiritual sponge able to soak in every life lesson God is offering. It's a mark of maturity when you choose to forever be a student in God's classroom. Slow to speak, quick to listen, slow to assert, quick to submit, slow to grasp for answers, quick to ask for answers. We're the children. God is the Father full of love. He's the God, eager to pull us close, eager to tell us he loves us, to hug us, to enjoy us, to just spend time with us. His love far outlasts his judgment, but he's full of vision. And it's not just for your life. It's for his glory. And it's for the good of this world. This world needs a lot of good. Far be it from him to spare the lessons he wants to teach his kids that are to be lights in the dark. The harvest is plentiful. He will not spare the lessons from you that will raise you to be mighty men and women with the light of the world, to seek and save the lost as servants. Jesus, the son of man came to serve, not be served. My kids will be servants. No one was more identity rich than Jesus himself. It was because he was so identity rich, he was able to serve everyone with no need for anything in return. Why? He knew who he was. He had the glory of God in his chest. You couldn't steal his joy. 
No lot in life, no tax bracket. Dreams come true or dreams never, dreams come true or nightmares come true. I'm a son of God. I know who I am. I'm bringing hope to the hopeless, light to the dark, healing to the wounded. Church, God is not gonna spare you the rebuking that helps you be the sons and daughters of God that bring ministry to this world because this world needs ministry. Confess your pride. Lay it all down. In the midst of your hardest seasons, confess your pride. In the midst of your most heartbreaking moments, God, dude, I'm like heartbroken, but Lord, please search me. See if there be any way in me that is not in line with your will. For I know you can make use of this season. You can draw me closer to you, make me more like you for, your, for my good, for your glory. In Luke 5.10, Peter experiences the goodness of God. Jesus does this profound miracle, and it, honestly, it scares the crap out of Peter, and he literally tries to get away from Jesus because it's too good to be true. And Jesus says something really powerful. Don't be afraid. Even as your pride's being rebuked, don't be afraid. You don't have to be afraid of that. The God rebuking your pride is far more eager, eager to lavish love on you So let him rebuke you. It's all right. He loves you. He wants to release you as an identity-rich, confident son and daughter of God. It's not for your shame. It's for your saving. He's eager to give more grace. So how do we do this? How do we grow in humility? I got three L's to prevent you from a life of future L's. Am I right? Sorry. Number one, first, the Lord. Bet you didn't see that coming. It's his strength alone. If there's one thing I'm learning, my strength ain't worth a whole lot. <laughs> Honestly, y'all, my strength is so whack. It's like, it's profound. The illusion of my strength is it actually helps me take ground in the short term and then inevitably just lose end of sentence. Like I will take ground and then come to the end of myself and I will lose the ground. I am so Peter. Oh, Jesus, you know me. I'm not going anywhere. You see me. I'm so eager to wake up in the morning and give myself just a self-enthused pep talk. Josh, you're a, you're a freaking, no one can stop you, dude. You think hard enough and try hard enough, you're gonna do it. And I'm telling you, God is just really not content with that spirit in me. It's that 2 Corinthians 12 that I keep mentioning. I I mentioned almost all of you probably individually too, but it's that Jesus saying, my strength is perfected in your weakness. So it's Lord, teach me. I can't teach myself. I need you to teach me. That, that heart is ready to be taught. Ask God to teach you the ins and outs of your pride and your humility. Ask God to teach you the difference between confidence and pride. Ask him to teach you the difference between humility and insecurity. Because one's required and one's not allowed. And you ask him these things for the rest of your life. 
You'll never stop. Show me where my confidence is. Show me where my pride is. Teach me humility and heal my insecurity. Number two, life. Life is gonna attempt to humble you whether you want it to or not. When you are dating, you have theories on marriage and then you get married. When you are married, you have theories on parenting and then you have a child. When you are wealthy, you have theories on being poor and then you lose your job and run out of money. When you're popular, you have theories on being lonely, then you move to a new city and you feel alone. When you haven't experienced death, you have theories on grief and then you lose someone close. Life is going to humble you. It will break your heart. It will prove you wrong. You will go from theory to experience and all of a sudden you will think differently than you once did. You'll find the addition of your choices did not equal the sum that you once thought it would. You'll find in those moments character flaws that you once thought were character strengths. And in those moments, you will be left with the choice. And I promise you, the choice will be extremely difficult. If it's not difficult, you're not hearing the choice. You can either close your heart and in your anger or your shame or your grief or your embarrassment, shut down. Or you can be Jesus in the garden. Father, please remove this cup, but not my will. Your will be done. Number three, you walk with the posture forever of a learner. This is the life posture of a disciple of Jesus. That's literal. A disciple of Jesus was taking notes with their life. A disciple of a rabbi was in a constant state of teach me. So for us, examine the life of Jesus, the most humble human to ever exist. It's that proverb, a wise man loves correction. A foolish man despises rebuke. It's that love being righteous over being right posture to be the child that receives the father's discipline with a broken heart, to be a learner in every situation, not just with God, but with everyone you're talking to, the person you're discipling, the person discipling you, your peer, your teacher, your coworker, your enemy, your spouse, your parent, your child. In every moment, it's always, what are you teaching me? What can I learn? Someone offended me the other day and I started praying about it. And you know what was even more offensive was I felt the Holy Spirit say, what's he teaching you? And I thought, nothing over my dead body is that guy teaching me something right now. I promise you, Lord, he's not. You know what that was? Pride. That was the closed heart that God opposes. Church, we are to embody the humility of Christ who did not consider it worthy to be grasped, to hold on to heaven, but instead took on flesh, walked among us, washed feet, died on the cross, bore the sins of man. We're that body. We're the sons and daughters, the children of a heavenly father, eager to lavish grace on us, to be learners at the feet of Jesus, to never, ever fall prey to the pressure of being an expert, of being the smartest in the room, to have it figured out, 
Even when you know the most in the room, you take on the posture as knowing the least. With God, there is always, always, always something to learn in every situation. And the God of grace will only grow you as a result of your humility for his glory, for the good of the world, and for your good. So to transition to communion, a couple of questions. Is there an area where you are currently opposing God with your pride? Now, you can think about your walk with God or your friendships or a conflict you're having with someone where you're so convinced that they are very wrong and you are very right. And even within that, even if that's true, is your pride lurking, even in them being wrong and you being right? In your parenting, in your co-working, just some questions to get your brain going. You don't have to listen to this, but whatever. How do you treat people that frustrate you? How do you treat people that have disappointed you? How do you treat people that you feel are wrong and you're right? How is your talk to listening ratio? Whose story are you most invested in, yours or others? How eager are you to give your opinions and assertions? How eager are you to ask questions and ponder? How eager are you to see the splinter in their eye versus the plank in your own? And as you ponder all this, ask God to reveal any area of pride and respond accordingly. And once you've owned it and confessed it and bore the responsibility, and only then are you now in position to say, God, thank you. Thank you for your grace. It's Ephesians 2.8 then. It's by grace I've been saved, not my works. My salvation was not contingent on this moment, just my good. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for your grace that you lavish on me. And then lastly, if there's time, probably won't be, pray for a life marked by humility. I truly believe today's conversation is so pivotal to this church seeking and saving the lost. Only a humble church will find the harvest. Only a humble church will hear people declare that Jesus is Lord over their life. Love you all. Take some time to pray. This will be individual.